This is The Lonely Office, your playbook for navigating the messy line between work and life. Our topics are sourced from real, anonymous workplace conversations happening within Glassdoor communities. From going through 10 rounds of Zoom interviews to the scam that is unlimited PTO, we discuss timely work-life issues so you don't have to brave the professional world alone. I wanted to tell you this story about John. Have I told you this before? No, John. No, let's go. Let's hear about John. So John is 45 and he comes across this online forum where he can compare his TC or total compensation, as they say in the biz, with others in his same situation, right? Right. Same city, same relative age. John sees something that shocks him. Compared to everyone else in this forum, he falls into the 60th percentile of income. It's not that bad. Oh. Everyone has to fall somewhere. I like your perspective, Leah. But see, this is shocking to John because he always viewed himself as wealthy compared to his friends and his wife's friends. A fire has been lit. (laughs) (laughs) He starts hitting the job boards again, even though he hasn't been in the job market for over a decade. And he calculates at best that he can net out another 75K in annual salary. Okay, That's not insignificant. But then something hits him. See, he and his wife have kids in an expensive school and a big mortgage, and he's asking himself, can I really afford the risk, the time, the energy to make a big move like this? Is it really worth pushing through all this work just to hit a new slightly higher plateau? Mm. John experiences something for the first time in his life, a feeling of finality and loss of momentum. It starts settling in. It becomes increasingly obvious to him that it's just not worth it any longer to compete at higher levels. Basically, John taps out. He taps out. There's an acronym apparently that goes around now. It's called Henry. Yeah, you sent me something about that. I just heard about this for the first time yesterday. Okay, so Henry stands for high earner, not rich yet. There you go. And it refers to people who are making high income, but ultimately don't consider themselves wealthy just yet. The income these earners make is anywhere between typically $250,000 and $500,000. But after taxes, after schooling the kids, costs of housing, mortgage, just like John's situation, for many of these families who live in cities with high cost of living, not to Leah here, I know you live in San Francisco, Yeah, that may not leave (laughs) much room for savings. But what's so interesting about John's story and other Henry's is their psychology. Despite the high income, they feel stuck in this financial morass Mm. where their upward progress is impeded. And at some point, they just end up giving up on becoming wealthy, or at least wealthy on the financial terms they've envisioned. So on this show, we talk a lot about these digital undercurrents in our lives that impact our social and professional lives. One of these more powerful digital undercurrents, not readily appreciated, is transparency platforms. Mm -hmm. It's a fancy name, but it's a really simple idea. Tell us what we're talking about. A transparency platform is any application or technology that sheds light on information, which was previously dark. We all shop for airfares on sites like Kayak and Expedia, apps like Zillow or Redfin. My husband used to like embarrassingly ask people, oh my gosh, how much did you pay for this place? And now he can just look it up on his phone as soon as we leave. There you go. And then of course, Glassdoor. Glassdoor is a world of information about company culture and salaries. So these are all what in common tech speak is called transparency platforms. And in many ways, they're positive. They bring information and clarity to markets 
or spaces that initially don't have that. So I think the most recent offshoot of these transparency platforms are social forums. And it's because with social forums, you can really drill in with an extreme amount of detail on your own financial worth, accounting for everything from gender to city to age, whether you have kids, whether you've even started out with a nest egg from your parents. There's a term that's been circulating to describe this phenomena, and it's called TC. TC stands for total comp, TC transparency. In a way, the motivation to seek transparency about your own financial makeup seems to serve a purpose, right? To know where others similar to you stand so that you can aspire to better your own financial situation. But I think the question we're going to address on the show today is, when do our motivations morph at some point from knowing where you stand to one of yearning to what you do not have? When did this stop becoming a tool to get ahead and instead become an impediment to our mental health and maybe even our professional progress? Let's go back to your example, Leah. You hit on Zillow. <laughs> Everyone has played that game where then you talk to another and you're like, how do you think they afforded that place? Right. Do you think that their parents paid the down payment? Do you think right. they were vested in XYZ? The question back to what I said beforehand is this a tool to help situate yourself? How should I be doing relative to others or is this causing more harm? I don't think it's a tool. Okay. <laughs> it's definitely comparison for the sake of comparison without much concrete benefit. Right. I think for salary comparison, though, it can be incredibly helpful to know what you should be being paid because the company's not going to be like, hey, we're underpaying you by $50,000 and we feel awful about that. Have you watched the FX series, Fleischman is in Trouble? I've heard of it, but I haven't watched it. So it's a mini series that connected, I think, with the profiles of this sort of privileged angst class that many high-income earning families in New York perceive. So in the case of this mini series, it was about high-income earning families in New York. In one of the scenes, it kind of opens up with the wife of a well-to-do physician, and she comes across a brownstone of her friends. And she's always thinking the grass is green or like, if I can only live in that brownstone. But then it occurs to her that her friend in this brownstone, of course, still has to travel down and do her laundry in the basement and run across mice and, you know, <laughs> carry strollers. And, and so <laughs> the race in that sense never really quite ends. And that psychology throughout the show, and it gains some popular appeal. Can I jump in here real quick? We have a wide range of listeners on this show. And for those listeners right now, if you're from lower to middle class roots, you might be listening to this right away and you're playing the world's smallest violin. Right? <laughs> this privileged angst is the silliest thing in the world to me. Coming from a blue collar town, we really ascended into the middle class from the working class. Growing up in Cleveland, it's like, am I 10 minutes from the factory or am I 20 minutes right. with a nice park? I myself, early on, was like, anybody that complained about making 100K or more, shut the F up. Right. But as a person in the last five years where, where my career has kind of moved into a space where I started making more and finding some success, I'm starting to actually kind of feel some of this pain point that the HENRY acronym describes. You're empathizing. A little bit more. And I want to say, just if you're with me listening and you're skeptical, empathize with us for the rest of the show, because I remember saying to myself 10 years ago, like, oh, I'll never complain if I make 100K. It was like, okay, now I'm here. How do I go from here and move forward? So just hang with us here. 
Yeah, I think it rings hollow for a lot of middle-class workers. And it's really about the reference point you use to set your financial expectations. And for these Henrys, their expectations were unduly set decades ago, and perhaps they can't let go of them. And I think that's the perspective of maybe the middle-class professional taking a look at the situation. But the psychology itself, where did this come from? Because I remember in the, let's call it the late 90s, before heading off to college, what was in vogue to talk about amongst your friend circles, what you're hearing in the news were these happiness frameworks, right? That's what you talked to your friends about in high school? <laughs> I was talking about It was about, the best like, of times. It was the worst of times. <laughs> no, no, no. If you were listening on the evening news network to a Dan Rather or whatever, that's kind of what they were sharing, right? Like, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of emphasis on these happiness studies. Yeah. There's this one particular one, an 80-year longitudinal study that Harvard did. And, you know, all these studies find that close relationships are the, the best predictors of happiness. But what I'm getting at here is, despite that, our generation has kind of fallen to this it's a trap of sorts, of leveling up and constantly comparing ourselves to others. And one reason ultimately is the availability of these tools, right? These transparency platforms are available, touch of a button, and the information is always there. And it's sometimes hard to not help yourself. You have to ask yourself, at what point does this become more voyeurism? To pile out a little bit to what Aaron said, so like, for instance, in my case, we moved to San Francisco, both my husband and I had higher salaries than we had ever previously had. So the expectation in our minds, even though neither of us came from upper middle class or rich backgrounds or whatever, was like, oh my gosh, this is it. We made it. Right. We're not going to be worried about what things cost at the grocery right. store. And then living in a place like San Francisco or New York or any sort of major metropolitan area, cost of living is really high. How are you telling me that it would be like a million dollars for you to buy a two-bedroom apartment? That can't be true. So inflation as well. I mean, geez, a gallon of of orange juice now freshly squeezed is 16 bucks at Whole Foods. I mean, come on. There's a lot of income coming in. Payments are being able to make to whatever services, but you don't see the savings account growing. Is that what causes the, the anxiety? That's a hard question to ask, Aaron. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I think the reason why it's hard is because it's complicated. Let's flesh out some of the culprits here. Geography is a culprit, meaning where you live, right? So then the critic's going to come in and say, why do you live there? And then the realist is going to come in and say, well, I had to live there to get the job. And then the critic's going to come in and say, well, now it's remote. Why don't you move to a more feasible place where it's low cost of living? And there's that whole conversation now where people lived, say, in San Francisco, and now they've moved to Ohio, Ohio. let's say, because we always have to talk about Ohio. And companies are coming in and saying, okay, well, you can't keep making your San Francisco salary in Ohio. That's not fair. Right. The other thing, Matt, is a great question is when you're looking at why isn't savings building, it's like, okay, well, part of it is geography. Part of it is also geography in relation to what companies are paying based on that geography. I suspect that this comparison and keeping up with the Joneses starts earlier subconsciously. Mm -hmm. For example, just because you make a higher salary, you don't have to get a better house. It's not like, oh, with the new salary, you have been forced to buy a new quarter of a million dollar house or whatever it is in any other place, right? Some of it's choices, but are you really just taking what you need? I'm not making judgments. I'm saying when you're right. asking yourself, why isn't the savings growing? Is it because you added that new security system? Look, when you're earning more, you're usually working more. Yeah. Well, and you're outsourcing more too then. I mean, you're outsourcing That's childcare right. or- The lawn. I just have someone cutting the lawn for the first time in my life. I only thought people in the movies did that. Like the lawn or the laundry or something that seems really gratuitous, but if you've only got a couple days in the weekend to spend with your kids, maybe you'd rather be doing 
something fun. I think what's interesting is I started outsourcing and taking on extra expenses when I started making more because the work required more. I only had a certain amount of time with my family. And I was like, wait a second, if I only have the weekends, I don't want to spend four hours cutting my lawn. Then you start realizing, oh, that's why a lot of people do this. What happens is time becomes a commodity. Like Time always was important. But once you start getting things in people that take that time, you start figuring out ways to buy it back. Yeah. Even the questions I know in these comparison forums, like, should you have kids? Should you not? It becomes very transactional. And we should be practical. But don't you think, Matt, these forums are getting to a point where it's so granular that it starts becoming so planned out? A lot of the phraseology you see in these social forums, and one particular that's a toxic one is TC or GTFO. And if you can't figure out what GTFO means there, it means get the f*** out of here. Meaning, Share your total compensation, not interested in- Or get out of the forum. Get out of the- f- Oh. oh so we, well, I don't want to hear your story unless you tell me how much you're making. There you go. Ah. In these particular threads, they're interested in someone in my similar age, similar city, similar background. What are they making? And it becomes just transactional. That to me is an impediment to your mental health, an impediment to getting ahead. I think you just end up developing a certain anxiety, a financial anxiety that comes with all that comparison- I do remember as an Xer, at least in my demographic, from the very beginning, we were always put into a certain cohort or percentile where you just understand your progress in life based on where you're situated relative to others. And that's the key. And this was just reinforced for me, at least, and I think a lot of my generation from grade school all the way through college, frankly, even post-college, the jobs in the financial sector would rank your performance bonuses based upon your levels. And so we're programmed almost in a way to seek this information. And at some point in your career, you realize that you're no longer getting access to that. So you go to these forms because you yearn it and you yearn to understand where you're at. Looping back to John's predicament, he doesn't care anymore because he's realized that making a jump to make more money is going to negatively impact his job security or his lifestyle. That conversation is a conversation that moms have all the time. I joined a mom group last week for people with newborns, and there was a lot of conversation about going back to the office after maternity leave. And a big conversation is, do I look for a new job while I have this sort of free time, or is it better to return to office to like a environment and a community that I know because I have a great supportive boss? So I do think that people are putting more emphasis on work-life balance. Do you feel sad for John? Because in his case, it seems like he came to the same conclusion you just spoke about, but for different reasons. Well, he was happy before. So I feel sad for him that he sort of, he goes into this forum, he compares himself, he decides, actually, (laughs) I'm not rich. Actually, I'm the middle of the barrel. Right. And so I should just go get something better. And then he's like, eh, it's not worth it. My whole life is a sham. It's a similar tone as John's. You sent me a tweet that Alex Lieberman put out, Matt. Founder of Morning Brew sold it to a business insider. Yeah. It was a very well-received tweet. So what he's really summarizing is there's no income cap to financial anxiety, meaning you're always at every level of income experience some element of financial anxiety. And he shares his own situation where essentially he sold his startup a decent amount of money. He parallels the financial anxiety he still suffers to also have the same feeling. And one of the reasons is comparison to others, Right. And what may have started as a healthy understanding of where you stand is maybe more, like we said, into obsession. 
when you sent me that tweet and I read the first line, which is, I have very real financial anxiety, my first reaction was like, get the fuck out of here. (laughs) Come on, man. You've sold this for millions of dollars. Like You've reached a new normal in your life. But what I thought was actually really brave about the tweet and why it's important is it actually unlocks a deeper thing here that I think we're diving into, which is there's something that we're missing and a lot of people are missing. And I think that goes back to this comparison thing. The comparisons are about the material, right? The comparisons are about the stuff. It's about the numerical aspect of savings and volume. And I think the missing part here is like, well, are you just doing the thing you love to do? If you don't have something that you love that isn't connected to careerism, and I think that's where people get really screwed up. Even if you adopt careerism as your philosophy in life, where upward mobility on a income level, net worth level, is what provides you utility and happiness. Yeah, joy. Then you look at those most successful careerists, everyone from Rockefeller down on to Warren Buffett. They gave it away. They gave it away. Right? Yeah. Rockefeller, one of the biggest philanthropists of all time, quartered 90% of the oil market. And till this day, most of the museums you go to in New York City are all Rockefeller endowments. Bezos, Buffett, Zuckerberg, whatever you want to name, all these tech billionaires, they've all signed the billion dollar pledge. So even if that's your game, even if careerism is your game, then you look at the end game and you see those folks who are there and you're like, they're giving it away. But Matt, like speaking on that, you've built businesses, you've built companies, you've sold companies and stuff like that. I'm not calling you a career, right. I'm saying, but there's a passion there for building and growing. And has it really been about the material for you or right. was it a little bit more about the journey kind of? Let me preface this by just saying, I have a lot of friends who are incredibly astute business operators who look at a market, know what they need to do to make a lot of money and they do it. And so I have nothing against that. I also have friends that are more, what I consider myself to be, which is an entrepreneur operator who launches products or businesses that they both have domain expertise in and truly enjoy. And there's some expectation of financial worth that comes out of it, but that's not the, not only not the end all, but not the motivation to start either. My first startup that I launched probably had more reasons to do with my realization that at that age, at least I didn't work well with others in the sandbox and I probably needed to do something on my own. I've matured since then. I like to think I've solved some of those sandbox issues, but That's the truth. That's what drove me and still drives me to do it. And I found that in the slog that is building a business or entrepreneur, as well as like if you're a a careerist working at a company, there's a slog in waking up every day and just doing it again. Resilience is what you need ultimately to have a positive outcome. And my point is you only get that resilience if you actually love what you do. Do you remember we talked about maybe one of the earliest episodes we did? We talked about Icky Guy. Well, I feel like when we had this icky guy conversation way back when I was talking about how advertising really appealed to me because it was an intersection between business and the arts. Can we mention what icky guy is? There's a construct. Yeah. So the construct is basically in approaching what you should do in life, you should consider four dimensions. The first is what you love. The second is what you're good at. The third is what the world needs. And the fourth is what you can be paid for. So it's this really detailed framework on how you should choose the vocation for your life. And it's called the icky guy. And I'm sure I'm saying it wrong too, but <laughs> I loved art. I was good at business and I could get paid. Advertising worked out really nicely for me. And then as my life has progressed, I've realized that I need more balance. I haven't job hopped probably as much as other people because once you've established yourself at a company, you know how to do the work. They trust you to do the work in your own time frame. 
that's pretty invaluable. Was there a time period in your life where you actually recognized and became aware that the reference point you should use is where you embarked from versus where you're at? So all this total compensation or get the F out of here threads, what they lose sight on is that you're always changing your reference point. Once you get that next salary jump or the next raise, you're then going back in and saying, okay, now let me see and compare myself against others versus going back to the original reference point, which might lead to more gratitude or contentment at the very least. So for both of you, was there a point in your life where that kind of clicked? I don't know if there was a specific point, but Aaron, I feel like that's what you were saying, how your initial reaction to this was that you've got to be f***ing kidding me because based on your childhood and how you grew up, it's inconceivable that people would be at a certain level and still be complaining about not making as much money. I think if you can keep that sort of reference point of where you've come from, you're generally happier. I'm also so skeptical of people on these forums. Do you really make that much money? Are you full of crap? I don't know. People who are actually doing well aren't walking down the street telling everybody, look at me, I'm making half a million dollars a year. I agree, Leah, but the flip to that is a lot of these forms are anonymous, right? Yeah. What yeah. do you gain out of it? But I would argue you gain some perverse joy. Yeah. That's true. Trolling, whatever it be. I've always had a reference point of how the hell is this happening? When I say how the hell is this happening, I mean, I tell my wife, I'm like, can you believe I get to do a podcast when you're know, getting paid to consult for podcasts? Like where I came from, I know what it's like to work my ass off. I know what it's like to have eviction notices. So I've always had a sense of, gratitude for what I do. However, the one thing that I want to tap into with John at the beginning story is, I think John's going through a midlife crisis. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because I think the starting point with John was he always thought he was wealthy. He's not a Henry. He thought he was, was wealthy. He was ignorance or something. But in fact, he was, right? So it's all the reference point. Yeah. The silent killer here is that John was happy when he thought he was wealthy. All of a sudden, John's tapping out of life. I don't mean this literally. At the end, he's tapping out and he's not motivated anymore because he doesn't think he's wealthy. What you should be saying is, can I provide for my family? Yes. Do I make good money? Yeah. I thought I made more. Maybe I don't make as much, but I make some, make a lot more than these other people. Whatever that is. My point is, he's got a hole in his icky guy, man. Yeah. But the issue with the icky guy too is it presumes that you can find sustainable meaning in your occupation or vocation. And I think John is a careerist. I think that's the answer to the question, actually, why he feel that way. He put all meaning for him and utility into in his career. And then all of a sudden he realized it wasn't there, so he lost meaning. And there's clearly other channels you can go to to find meaning in life, right? If you're religiously bent, there's the church. If you're vocationally, socially bent, there's Habitat for Humanity. Right. I think there's a lot of us, a lot of our generation, where we are careerists for better or worse. In this case, it's the worst. And, and when you're, you're stacking all cards in that one column, even if it's an ikigai framework, you kind of set yourself up for failure there. When you asked me a question earlier, you're like reference points. For me, I always made a mental note to myself. Don't forget why you started doing this. Right. If I could just tell stories for my life, I'd be the happiest human being. You know, it reminds me of like actors, right? The actor always starts out in the theater. And then eventually, if the actor has success, they go and they make this big budget movie and they realize, like, what am I doing with my life? You know what they do? They go back to the theater. How many off-off Broadway plays have De Niro and... Oh, Pacino too, man. Pacino's Pacino, a theater Pacino. guy. He's the king of going back to off-off Broadway. Absolutely. Whatever, Peanuts. Yeah. At what point do you feel that financial anxiety was something that you tempered or you controlled? When did you feel like you slayed the dragon of, of anxiety? And 
Was it at a certain income level or was it actually nothing to do with income? I married someone. (laughs) His background is in finance. So I'm like, should I be worried? And then he will answer me like, yes or no. And if the answer is yes, this is the things we need to do to be less worried. Should I cancel Hulu? And he's like, Hulu's not going to make the difference with what's going on here. (laughs) Don't worry about the Hulu. I sort of transferred that burden onto another person. So I feel a little bit disingenuous answering the question. That's a valid perspective. I'll tell you right now, I never lost it. I'm anxious about money. And you know, because it was just always part of life. I know there's probably some head nod moments right now in the audience going, F yeah. I remember that movie, The Aviator with Leonardo DiCaprio, and he's at dinner with uh, the Hepburn family. They're like sitting around and they're talking about how, you know, oh, we don't care about money. And he's like, well, that's because you've always had it. Right. So what I mean is for me, I've never lost that fear. It's tempered a little bit as I've, I noticed that when I went on my own, that the world didn't end when I lost a client. So that's what tempered it a little bit was more my betting on myself and then coming out on the other end. When I was dependent on someone else, I was living in anxiety every single day because they could fire you all the time. You weren't the master, yeah. Of your that's own right. Being. That's, I was the yeah. master of my own destiny. Yeah. If nothing else, we've learned that Aaron is the ultimate control freak. That's <laughs> so true. <laughs> I feel kind of bad about my answer because I'm like, am I like a poster child for like sexism? No. Well, no, no, like no. stereotypes about women not worrying about money, and I don't think it's a male female thing, at least in our no. household. It's who like loves to do what, and he yeah. loves like his spreadsheets. What's so interesting about this conversation? is most of our discussions on the show talk about this change in perspective ever since COVID and the work from home to almost an anti-work, more work-life balance. And I think this is a bit of a throwback. There's a set of folks out there who actively yearn to constantly level up and are always comparing themselves. But but we should remind ourselves that I think the anti-work movement, I think that's the subreddit on Reddit, it's now 3 million members. It's strong and it's growing. And Literally called the anti-work movement, one of the biggest subreddits on Reddit for those who want to end work, curious about ending work, and and want to get the most out of a work-free life. I think as a society, we're probably more along those lines of thinking right now, but there's still those Henrys amongst us clearly are fretting about their financial ranking amongst their peers. Hey, you made it. Thanks for tuning in to The Lonely Office. If you like what you heard, follow us on all major podcast platforms so you don't miss an episode and make sure and tap five stars and leave a review. I know everyone says it, but it actually helps others like you discover the show. Remember, the topics you hear us talk about on the show are sourced from Glassdoor communities where professionals are having candid conversations about their careers anonymously with others in their industry. To be part of that conversation, download the Glassdoor app And when you're in the app, make sure and join the Lonely Office Bowl. That's where we are. When you're there, you can suggest a topic idea or an episode idea, or you can make it more formal and email us at thelonelyoffice at glassdoor.com. We'll catch you next time. 